This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. If you ever watch TV shows from past time periods like Downton Abbey, there are commonly household servants in the show. And that can be a strange thing for 21st century Americans to see, but it's actually pretty common in the history of the world, and it's still common in some places in the world. And in those kinds of arrangements, there's typically a kind of clear and formal delineation between the servant class and the served class. So in Downton Abbey, for example, the servants all eat downstairs, while the landowner and his family and his guests enjoy the meal that the servants have prepared and served upstairs. Now, if you're an American, you probably have an instinctive kind of resistance to that kind of arrangement, right? It looks strange. But we can actually gain a certain admiration for those servants. Nobody likes selfish people, right? And we probably can see in at least some of those servants in some of these shows that you may watch that there is a real selflessness in that. We probably wish we were more selfless. So we can admire that in them, and sense there's something very right about selflessness, but also sense there's something very wrong with that arrangement. Because those arrangements of kind of the clear delineation between the servants and the served are typically predicated on the idea that the servants are somehow inherently inferior to those they're serving. And we rightly sense that there's something wrong with that. In the passage I'm about to read, we're going to see something different. We're going to see that Jesus does require his disciples to serve. But he doesn't require them to serve him. Instead, as their Lord and as their master, he serves them. And then he tells them, requires them, to serve one another. So in Jesus' kingdom, no one is inherently inferior to one another. And no one is exempt from serving one another. So serve one another as Jesus served. And in John 13, verses 1 through 20, we're going to learn four ways to do that. So let's read that now. I'll be reading from John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. 
That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This concludes the reading of God's word. So in this passage, Jesus tells us to serve one another as he served, and we see four ways to do that. First, see the love of Jesus. Second, see the humility of Jesus. Third, receive cleansing from Jesus. And fourth, follow the example of Jesus. So first, see the love of Jesus. The first verse of our text is kind of setting the, the setting for the whole scene. John's telling us at what time and where this took place. And he says that it was taking place just before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So Jesus is preparing for his death his resurrection, and his ascension, whereby he would return to the Father. But what about his disciples? His disciples had left their families, their jobs, their homes in order to follow Jesus. They had become outcasts in their native communities in order to follow Jesus. And now we're told Jesus is getting ready to leave and depart out of the world. So what about those disciples who left so much to follow him? Is Jesus just leaving them? Does he not love them? John anticipates such a misunderstanding of what Jesus is doing, and so he tells us in verse 1, after giving us this setting, that Jesus was preparing to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Now, I can already tell from the service today that if you come here regularly, it's not going to be a surprise to you or a new thought to you that Jesus loves his own who are in the world. But it's worth saying it again. And it's worth realizing it again, that Jesus loves his own who are in the world. Jesus was under no external compulsion. There was no law that required him to come into the world in the first place. But everything Jesus did from the day he came into the world to the day he departed the world to return to the Father, he did because he loved his own who were in the world. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us because he loved his own who were in the world. The light of the world, Jesus himself, came into the world because he loved his own who were in the world. And his own who were in the world came out of the darkness and loved him, while those who loved the darkness hated him and opposed him. But he willingly endured that hatred because he loved his own who were in the world. And ultimately, that hatred led to him being crucified on the cross. And as Jesus anticipated his crucifixion, he even prayed that if it was possible, that this would pass from him, that, the, that his father would take it from him. And yet, since it was not possible for him to save his own who were in the world without going to the cross, he willingly went to the cross because he loved his own who were in the world. And in that way, especially, as verse 1 tells us, he loved them to the end. And so from the very beginning of his life in the world, 
to the very end, he loved his own who were in the world. And the same is true today. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even though today he's not presently in bodily form still here in the world, he's now departed and returned to the Father. It's still true today that he loves his own who are in the world. He loves his own who are in the world before they loved him, before any of us loved Jesus. Jesus died for us. And so if you are here today and you don't yet love Jesus, you should not be afraid to come to him. He loves people like you before you love him. He died for people like you before you loved him. Turn from your sins and believe in him today, and he will pour his love into your heart. And even after you first come to know and believe the love that he has for you, he will continue in his love to you. He will love you to the end, because that's what he does. Peter's a great example of that in this passage. We're going to notice that he kind of messes some things up throughout the passage, and Jesus continues loving him through it. As the story of the Gospel of John continues, it actually gets worse. Uh, Peter denies Jesus at the moment of his death, and the rest of his disciples don't do much better. And yet he still dies for them. He still loves them to the end. And if you're here today and you're one of Jesus' own, you've probably had the feeling from time to time, to a greater extent or a lesser extent, that you're just not very good at following him. And yet even such disciples as you Jesus will love to the end. Great pastor John Newton, guy that wrote the song Amazing Grace, if you're familiar with that, he once said this, Ah, what a poor, cold, confused, inconsistent creature. I am a poor servant indeed. That's how he thought of himself. I'm not very good at this whole following Jesus thing. But here's what else he said. And my only comfort springs from thinking, which yet I do too seldom and faintly, not often enough, not strong enough. But this is the comfort I get from seeing how poor a servant I am. What a wondrous master I serve. If you want to serve one another as Jesus served, don't start by looking at yourself and the quality of your service. It's inconsistent at best. Look at the quality of Jesus' service. See the love of Jesus. And then see the humility of Jesus. So John continues the setting by telling us that these events took place during supper, and he lets us know that this was when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, to betray Jesus. But such a threat was nothing to fear for Jesus. Notice what John tells us in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. Jesus knows that Satan is behind that plot. And you would think that would be a significant existential threat, right? To know that one of your closest disciples is about to betray you, and there's this really powerful spiritual being who's even behind that betrayal. But John tells us that Jesus knew that all things had been given into his hands. The Father had granted him to have life in himself. In John 10, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, for this is the charge that I received from my Father. He knew that he had come from the Father. So no matter what lies Satan spreads about who Jesus is, Jesus knows who he is. That can't be threatened. And he also knows that he's going back to the Father. So even when Satan's plan succeeded, and Judas successfully handed Jesus over to be crucified, and he was in fact crucified and killed, all Satan did was send him back to his Father, the very place that he longed to go. So Jesus is in a position of absolute power here, right? All things are in his hands. He knows who he is. He knows where he's going. 
So what would you think he would do with that power, right? If he knows Judas is going to betray him, you'd think he would stop Judas from doing that, right? You'd think he would fight against this. That's like natural response to fear, right? Fight or flight. But Jesus does neither of those things. Instead, he serves. He willingly takes on the position of a servant. So look at verse 4, right? John tells us he knows the Father has given all things into his hands. He knows he's come from God. He knows he's going to God. So what does he do? He lays aside his outer garments and taking a towel, ties it around his waist. And then he pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, to wash the feet of another was a very humble position, a very servant-like position. Probably you intuitively sense that. In the ancient world, it's especially the case because their feet just tended to get very dirty. So even if I walk around Philly in flip-flops, my feet don't smell good at the end of the day, right? But imagine a world where the roads aren't paved, where there's no street cleaning throughout the week, where you're wearing open-toed shoes, right? The, the dirt is mixing with the sweat on your feet to make mud and a combination of whatever other unsavory things could be found on an ancient road. So it's kind of a dirty job, right? It's also uh, spatially or visually humbling. Like in order to wash someone's feet, you have to put yourself lower than they are. And when I hear this story, I can't help but think of those shoe shining stations. I, I don't actually see people use those anymore. I don't know if those are still a thing, but I think they're still there at 30th Street Station or the airport or whatnot. And at least in my life, I've had the time of seeing that, you know, the businessman who's kind of up on the throne there, and then you have someone shining their shoes, and the whole ritual kind of conveys the lower social standing of the one shining the shoes, in the world's eyes, at least. But this scene would be like a group of businessmen traveling together when the president and CEO tells them to sit on those chairs and then gets beneath them in order to shine their shoes. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. We see that here in Jesus' humility. So he doesn't have an inferiority complex, right? He's not saying, oh, I'm such a loser. I should probably be the one to, to wash all these other disciples' feet. He's not thinking less of himself. In fact, in verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. That's what I am. I am your teacher and Lord. But he doesn't boast in the fact that he's their teacher and Lord. He doesn't take that as a reason to require them to serve him and an exemption from himself to have to serve them. He doesn't boast in all things having been given into his hands. He just doesn't seem to think about it much. What he seems to think about are his disciples and their dirty feet and an opportunity to serve them by putting himself beneath them, even though he knows all things have been given into his hands, even though he is truly their teacher and Lord. That's the humility of Jesus. Next, we encounter a kind of counterfeit humility, the humility of Peter. And through him, we'll learn that if we are to serve one another as Jesus served, we have to first receive cleansing from Jesus. So let's look at the story of Peter here. Jesus comes to Peter in verse 6, and Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus tells him in verse 7 that though he doesn't understand this now, he will later, but Peter still says in verse 8, you will never wash my feet. Now, is that humility on Peter's part, right? It kind of sounds like he's saying, no, 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 you're, you're, you're the teacher and Lord here. You don't wash my feet. I should, I should be washing yours. And we can imagine that the opposite response from Peter would not have been humility, right? What if Peter had said, it's about time you come wash my feet. I've been serving you all these years. I'm getting tired, and you know what? I don't take care of myself enough. It's time for me to treat myself to a foot washing. Thank you, Jesus. 
That's arrogant, right? That's entitlement. We all look at that probably and, and sense that's pride. And that is one of the most kind of overt, obvious forms of pride. But there's another kind of pride that disguises itself as humility that we can observe here in Peter. It's a pride so focused on self that those who are controlled by it refuse to be served by others, least of all by their Lord. It's a pride that says, I can do it. I don't need help. It's a pride that wants to be in the driver's seat that says, yes, you can love me, but only if I earn it first. Only if I'm in control of the terms. It's a pride that shows itself in us when people ask us how they could pray for us. And the answer is always, oh, oh me? No, you don't need to pray for me. Everything's good here. My cousin, though, she's going through a hard time. Pray for her. I get it. Sometimes people ask you how they can pray for you. You kind of can't think of something off the top of your head. But if that's always the answer, you have pride issues. And what it does is it pushes people away. It prevents you from being really close with people. When people come over for dinner and they ask what they can bring, and the answer is always nothing, you probably have pride issues. When you're going through something you really can't bear alone, and you refuse to ask for help or even just let others know, that's probably pride in you. And it'll keep people at a distance. Jesus spoils Peter of such pride quickly when he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So here's the catch with that kind of pride. It doesn't just keep people away. It keeps Jesus away. Because Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve. So if you refuse to be served by him, you're refusing him. That's why he came. It's the impulse of the flesh to always feel like we need to do something for Jesus before we'll believe that we're loved by Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to love the worthy. He came to cleanse the dirty. The way to get Jesus to have a part with him, a share with him, as he says to Peter in this passage, is not first, actually, to serve him. It's to let him serve you. It's to confess that your sins have made you unclean and to believe that he died for your sins so that you could be cleansed. If you say to him, no, Lord, I don't need that. I'm not that dirty. I'll do better in the future. Or if you say to him, no, Lord, I don't deserve that. I'm too bad. In either case, you have no share with Jesus. No part with him, he says. Both are pride. One is the pride of saying, I'm not as bad as Jesus says I am, so I don't really need to be cleansed by him. I can cleanse myself. The other is the pride of saying, my sins are actually far greater than Jesus's. Even he couldn't cleanse them. And if you hold on to that, you have no share with Jesus. Unless he cleanses you, you have no part with him. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, okay, but don't we exist for God? Aren't we supposed to serve him? Don't, didn't he make us for his glory, not him for our glory? Yes, we do exist for God. Yes, we are here to bring God glory. He's not here to bring us glory. But do you see that one of the main ways God is glorified is through serving us? Think about, we said in this passage, we see the humility of Jesus, we see the love of Jesus. How will the love and humility of Jesus be put on display in your life if you will not let him serve you? 
Think about this. Uh, this is from Psalm chapter 50, verse 15. This is God speaking. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. You see the progression there? God says, when you're in trouble, I want you to call upon me. Because then I'm going to deliver you, and you will glorify me for my deliverance of you. And you think, well, doesn't that, that's kind of selfish, you know? If I'm in trouble, God's got bigger things to deal with. You know, I, I shouldn't be calling on him. No, God says that's exactly what you should do. Because when he delivers you, you're going to glorify him. It's going to bring him more glory when he saves. And now do you see the pride of refusing to let Jesus cleanse you? You're actually taking from his glory. You're trying to preserve a situation where you can always say, I did my best. By my efforts, I am what I am. Whereas the Apostle Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So that God gets the glory. If Jesus cleanses your feet, and then people ask you why you have clean feet, if you've allowed Jesus to cleanse you, then you have to say, he did it. And therefore, he gets the glory. How many people have wasted years of their lives saying, I'm too bad to come to Jesus? Thinking they were being humble when in fact they were proudly stealing from the glory of Jesus himself that he would have received for cleansing them of their sins. You must follow Jesus as the one who cleanses you, as your savior, not even merely as a good example, though we're going to talk about his example in a bit. He says, unless he cleanses you, you have no part with him. So Jesus rebukes Peter in that way. And in Peter's response to Jesus Peter demonstrates that he is truly one of Jesus' own who are in the world. He gets stuff wrong from time to time, but when Jesus corrects him, he responds with humility, right? So Jesus tells him this, and he changes his tune real quick. He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So when he's faced with the possibility of having no share with Jesus, he knows he wants Jesus, right? And even his response is, you know, not totally on the mark either, but he's kind of failing in the right direction, right? So then Peter, so Jesus reassures him, right? He says, the one who has bathed has no need to wash except for his feet. He's saying, you're already clean, Peter. If someone took a bath in the ancient world, by the end of the day, they wouldn't have to take a bath again, but they would have to wash their feet. And so through this, Jesus is teaching Peter, his disciples, and us something important, which is that if you have Jesus, you are already clean. Your sins have been forgiven. He died for all the sins of whoever believes in him. And therefore, the moment you believe, all your sins, past, present, and future, are wiped away. And you are declared righteous in God's sight because of what Jesus did. There are no new sins you can commit that have the power to condemn you. No one can bring any charge against you any longer in God's courtroom. No sins you commit can change your legal status before God. But what they can do is they can defile your conscience and bring a, a relational distance in your experience of relating to God. And so what's needed then when you sin after coming to Christ is not a kind of do-over of your conversion. You don't have to try to pray the sinner's prayer again or go through another sacrament. What's needed is a simple, honest confession of your sin and a fresh cleansing from the blood of Christ that was shed for you applied to your conscience as you receive and rest upon Jesus and his finished work 
trusting that your sins are forgiven because of what he did. Your whole body is already clean, but your feet have been dirtied when you sin, and Jesus stands ready to wash them again. So what that means is, when you're guilty of sin, and when you're feeling the guilt of that sin, especially the shame of it, the one place you want to go is to Jesus. And yet, how often is it sadly the case that it's when we're feeling guilty and when we're feeling ashamed that we stay away from Jesus? Or perhaps we tell ourselves that we're okay with Jesus, but we stay away from his body. We stay away from the church. What a warped picture of Jesus and his body. Jesus is not a Lord you have to work your way up to. This story shows us that he's a Lord who came down to serve us, who stands ready to wash and to cleanse us, even when we're guilty of sin again. If you're dirty, he's the one you want, and his body is no different. When you feel the weight of your sin, when you feel guilty, you feel dirty, and you wish to be free from it, his body, the church, this church, Christ Church South Philly, is here to minister to you and to serve you and to tell you again the good news of what Jesus has done for you in cleansing you of your sins. So will you let Jesus wash you? Will you let his church serve you? If you keep saying, once you put yourself back together, you'll pray, or once you put yourself back together, you'll go to church, that's pride. That's a sinful way of grieving your sin. This is a quote from Thomas Brooks, old English writer, so forgive the language, but here we go. He says, that sorrow for sin that keeps the soul from looking towards the mercy seat and that keeps Christ and the soul asunder or that shall render the soul unfit for the communion of saints is a sinful sorrow. He's saying there's a way to sorrow for your sin that is sinful. And it's a sorrow that keeps you away from Jesus, that keeps you away from the communion of saints, that keeps you from believing the gospel, basically, which is good news for sinners. Another longer quote here from John Newton. You, he, John Newton is uh, writing a letter. His letters are very helpful if you ever want to read any Newton. Um, that's, that's where he recommends starting. Um, someone's writing to him saying they can't believe that God would forgive someone as bad as they are, right? Newton writes back saying this. You say you find, a hard, you find it hard to believe it is compatible with the divine purity to embrace or employ such a monster as yourself. In thinking this, you express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is certainly wrong. Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He sometimes offers to teach us humility, but though I wish to be humbled, I desire not to learn in this school. His premises perhaps are true, that we are vile, wretched creatures, but he then draws abominable conclusions from them and would teach us that therefore we ought to question either the power or the willingness or the faithfulness of Christ. Indeed, though our complaints are good so far as they spring from a dislike of sin, yet when we come to examine them closely, there is often so much self-will, self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience mingled with them that they are a little better than the worst evils we can complain of. In other words, none of us have too low a view of ourselves. You can go ahead and have a low view of yourself. That's fine. That's right. But we often have too low a view of Christ, of his faithfulness, of his willingness, of his power to cleanse us of our sins. So that often in our battle against sin, we're not so much drawing near to Jesus to receive the grace we need to help in our time of need. We're kind of just self-willing ourselves 
And that is actually a sin, Newton says, worse than the sin we're fighting, probably. So before we can follow the example of Jesus, we must be willing to be served by Jesus. We must receive cleansing from Jesus. And then we follow the example of Jesus. So Jesus goes on in verses 12 to 13 to explain what he's done. He tells them they're right to call him teacher and Lord, but then he explains the lesson. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He says he's given them an example, right? He is the Lord and teacher, and precisely because they are not greater than he, if he, as the greater one than them, is willing to serve, then they also must be willing to serve one another. It's not the one who knows these things, he says, according to verse 17, who is blessed, but it's the one who does them. So what does this mean, that you all should literally wash one another's feet? Maybe, maybe that's what it meant to some extent for Jesus' disciples, but we have paved roads, we have closed-toed shoes. That kind of thing's probably more perfunctory than meaningful in our time and place. But the lesson still stands, and the blessing is for those who do it. Serve one another as Jesus served. So be on the lookout for opportunities to serve one another. Probably the most obvious place you'll find this is when uh, dire needs arise, right? It's a great place to start. Somebody's hungry, and they're going to go hungry if they don't have a meal. Someone needs a place to stay, or they're not going to have anywhere to sleep. Someone needs medical attention, or they're going to suffer and perhaps even die. Needs, when you see them in one another, are a place to start. But needs are not the place to end. I found that in a 21st century developed nation like America, a city like Philadelphia, if you only think of needs when you think of serving one another, it can be hard to get started on that. Because you probably don't, in an average day, encounter that many people who need a meal now or they're going to die of starvation. Such people exist. Such people exist throughout the world. Where we have opportunity, we absolutely should serve them. Needs are the place to start. You don't skip them, but they're not the place to end. And it can be especially hard to get started doing this within your church family if that's the only thing you're looking for. And that is Jesus' focus here, right? In verse 14, he tells his disciples to serve one another. Later in the Gospel of John, he's going to talk to them about their responsibility to the world. But the focus here is on their relationships with other Christians, right, with other disciples. And I don't, I don't know your church particularly well, but I'm guessing it's not frequently the case that you would find fellow church members in that kind of dire need that I've been talking about. So if that's all you're thinking about when you're thinking about serving one another, you're at a real danger of just never doing it and of keeping one another at arm's length all the time. So, it'll probably help you to go from thinking of needs to thinking more of opportunities. Don't skip needs, but expand your vision. So even in this story, right, like, it's not like they would have died if Jesus hadn't washed their feet. And it's not like they needed him to do it. Peter's maybe even thinking, like, hey, I can wash my own feet, you know. But Jesus saw an opportunity to serve them, and he took it. I think of a time recently when my family was sick, so I have a wife and two young kids, and uh, my wife had just, you know, texted some friends, hey, we're not feeling well, pray for us. And one of her friends, one of the members of our church, brought over food to our house. And like good food, you know, chicken and rice soup. Uh, we can't do chicken and noodle. Kid has a food allergy. But chicken and rice soup, it was excellent. The take and bake bread from Aldi. Do you have, all, you have Aldi down here? Yeah, nice. Take and bake bread's awesome. So she brought us the take and bake bread, crackers. She even brought us dessert, right? Gatorade, uh, ginger ale, all the stuff that's good for like sick stomachs, right? And did we need her to do that? 
Well, no, not technically, right? We had groceries, and we could have ordered Uber Eats, or we could have gotten grocery delivery to our house. But she saw an opportunity to serve us. And even though she herself has three young kids who are often sick, even though it took time out of her schedule, even though she had to kind of take the position of a servant to do it, think about it, she cooked for us, and she delivered our food for us, the kind of things that household servants have historically done. She chose to do it because she saw an opportunity. And that's actually a great way to come up with opportunities, is to think of the things that servants have historically done. Cooking, cleaning, laundry, childcare, these kinds of things. And just practice this with one another. Think of another member of your church that you could just offer that kind of thing to. It doesn't have to be even something that they need, right? It's an opportunity. Especially if somebody's going through a hard time. You may not be able to fix the issue that they're going through, but you may be able to serve them in one of those other ways that would just lighten their load and bear their burden with them. Look for opportunities to do those kinds of things. And now here's the flip side. If you're on the other end of that and someone offers to serve you in that way, try to say yes. Resist the urge to say, no, 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 you don't have to do that. No, it's okay. I don't need anything. Don't be like Peter was early in the passage, right? Try to say yes. So do you find in yourself that you don't have a strong desire to serve one another in these ways? Well, you're not alone. It doesn't come naturally to us. But in closing here, remember what empowered Jesus for this kind of humble service. Remember what John told us in verse 3. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew that he had come from God, and he knew that he was returning to the Father. We could say he knew three things. He knew who was in control. He knew who he was, and he knew where he was going. And you can know those three things, too. Jesus still upholds the universe by the word of his power. All things have been given into his hands. It's going to be okay if you get a little less work done. It's going to be okay if you get a little less sleep. It's going to be okay if you have to deal with the stress of corralling the kids and the stress of the grocery store or whatever else it takes to serve one another. He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. All things have been given into his hands. He's in control. He knew who he was. He knew that he had come from the Father. And if you are in Christ today, you have also been adopted so that you are now a child of God. That's your identity. Maybe you fear that if you go to serve someone else, they won't receive it in the way that you intended it, or you won't get it quite right. That's fine. Doesn't matter. They don't get to tell you who you are. God says you're his child. He knew where he was going. And if you're in Christ, you're going to the same place. He says that he went before us to prepare a place for us, that we might be with him where he is to see his glory and to dwell in his Father's house forever. That's your future. So yes, you have to give things up in order to serve others, but you can give it all up because in the end, Jesus gave it all up and returned to his Father so that we could be there with him. Out of love for his own who were in the world, he became flesh and eventually humbled himself further than even this act of service. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross in our place so that we could be with him where he is forever. He loved us then, and he will love us to the end. So servants, we are not greater than our master. If he, our Lord and teacher, has served in this way, if he, though he had all the power from the Father, all things given into his hands, chose to use his power to serve and ultimately serve us by dying for our sins so that we might be cleansed, then none of us are exempt from serving. 
however defiled you may be today from sin, receive cleansing from Jesus, and then follow his example to serve one another as he served. Let's pray for that now.